from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Matt Worth, and I'm currently serving as an elder on the session here at First Pres. Please join me in our call to worship. To all God's beloved who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the God of amazing grace is here. A word before I begin this morning. Uh, this is uh, not the sermon I intended to deliver this Sunday. It's not the sermon that I finished on Thursday evening, as it is my custom during a week when I am preaching. It is not the sermon. I had thought about delivering to conclude this three-week series on renewal. As we launch into this new church year, this wasn't uh, the sermon that I, that I thought I'd be preaching to close out that great encouragement. My spiritual director, an Augustinian priest, used to tell me that, that preaching should be a moment where the congregation overhears your prayer life where the congregation overhears what you're praying for. And since he spoke those words to me about a decade ago, I've tried to be mindful of this encouragement every time I approach the task of preaching. So what you're about to hear this morning are really just some of my prayers. The prayers I'm praying for my own life, the prayers I'm praying for this church, the prayers I'm praying for God's world. Good place to start is prayer. So let us pray. Break open your word afresh to us this day, O Lord, so that we would be changed, that we'd be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In 2008, J.K. Rowling delivered the commencement address at Harvard University. A name familiar, I assume, to most of us in this room, the creator and author of the magical world of Harry Potter. Rowling, not surprisingly, framed some of that address under the heading, The Importance of Imagination. The importance of imagination. Uh, she said, imagination is not only the uniquely human capacity to envision that which is not, and therefore the fount of all invention and innovation. In its arguably most transformative and revelatory capacity, it is the power that enables us to empathize with humans whose experiences we have never shared. Imagination is the power that enables us to empathize with humans whose experiences we have never shared. In her early 20s, uh, Rowling served as at the African Research Department of Amnesty International in their offices in London. 
Her primary work had her interacting with victims and their families who are under uh, the brutal thumb of totalitarian regimes. The stories she heard were absolutely terrifying. There were stories that gave her nightmares, stories of torture, stories of murder, stories of political imprisonment, stories of displacement. She said that these stories were the ones that provoked her imagination the most, that provoked her to think about what it would be like if she was the other, if she had experiences like the other, and that imagination moved her toward empathy. That imagination moved her toward justice for those individuals and their families. In a longer excerpt from that address, here's how she connects imagination to the pursuit of justice. Of course, the power to imagine, she says, like my brand of fictional magic, is morally neutral. One might use such an ability to manipulate or control just as much as to understand or sympathize. And many prefer not to exercise their imaginations at all. They choose to remain comfortably within the bounds of their own experience, never troubling to wonder how it would feel to have been born other than they are. They can refuse to hear screams or to peer inside cages. They can close their minds and hearts to any suffering that does not touch them personally. They can refuse to know. She goes on, I might be tempted to envy people who can live that way, except that I do not think they have any fewer nightmares than I do. Choosing to live in narrow spaces leads to a form of imprisonment and that brings its own terrors. I think the willfully unimaginative see more monsters. They are often more afraid. What is more, she concludes, those who choose not to empathize enable real monsters. For without ever committing an act of outright evil ourselves, we collude with it through our own apathy. I have had moments over the past few months where I had the choice, to borrow Rawlings' words, to either hear or to refuse to hear the screams. I have had choice to open or to close my mind and heart to a suffering that does not touch me personally. I've been presented with a choice to know or to refuse to know. And to be sure, in these last several months, we all have. We've all had that choice. We've all stood at those crossroads. For me, the culmination of that choice, of these choices, happened on Friday. Two of the parents at our boys' school, who are also moms to two of Johnny's friends, one woman is white and one is black, not members of the church, but I was so pleased to see them walk in here this morning. They invited our school community to come together 
to process and to dialogue, to share stories that have bubbled up in the shadow of what is taking place all over the country, but in particular, most recently in Tulsa and in Charlotte. I attended that gathering, and for three hours, I heard terrifying stories, gut-wrenching stories from students and their parents as to how racism is alive and well in America today. I heard stories of desperate mothers who tell their black sons when they get in the car to drive themselves to school, the last thing they say to them is work hard, be kind, and come home alive. Something I have never said to my boys. I heard from fathers who told stories about how every day they fight to convince their black sons and their black daughters that they are beautiful and intelligent and capable, just like any other white child. I heard from a mother who is white. She's married to a black man. Upon hearing that another black man was killed in deep lament and shame, She told a story of how she cuddled their youngest son in her arms on the floor of a bathroom, began to cry, and began to make a prayer, saying, thank you, God, that this boy's skin color is light like mine and not dark like his daddy's. I heard story after story through tears and broken hearts, and there was a moment over the course of this three-hour session when I wanted to share. I mean, I'm a Presbyterian preacher. I like to share things. And I wanted to share. And what I wanted to share instinctively, like what was deep down inside of me, what was bubbling up, what I could feel bubbling up, was to say something like, I'm not like those white people. I'm not a racist. I'm not a, I'm not a bigot like them. If you're white and you're like me, your instinct leans in moments like these to disassociation. Do you know what I mean? You disassociate with those who are really the racists. And you defend your own credibility as someone who is not one. You say things like, I have black friends. I don't see color. I treat people the same. I'm not a racist. Hey, I'm on your side. Thankfully, I shared none of those things because they're not helpful, nor are they entirely true. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Despite the fact that this sermon changed dramatically from Thursday evening to Saturday morning, the title hasn't changed. It's taken right from Joshua 24 in his farewell speech. This leader of the people of God who ushers them into the promised land, who is the one who is on the receiving end of the benefits of God, of the blessing of God, of the promises of God, 
They're living at relative peace at this point in time. And nonetheless, Joshua implores them, hey, choose this day whom you will serve. And another way to think about it is him saying, choose this day and every day who you're going to serve. Whether the God who has delivered you into this land or the God of, 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 of somebody else, which God are you going to serve I added to this text, the the New Testament text from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus encounters a group of uneducated fishermen, wows them with his, his presence and his call, and essentially says, as he says in other places, come and follow me, and I love the way Luke puts it so plainly, and they dropped everything and followed him. You take these two texts together. You take the scriptures as a whole. And if we say we're going to serve this God, if our response to the Joshua question is affirmative, yes, we will serve this God. If our answer to the question of Jesus, will you follow me, is affirmative. If that is true, if we're serving this God and following this Jesus in the world, then we have to evaluate what this commitment means. What it means as it relates to the issues facing us in this very hour. For this God, the God who we're talking about here, is the God of the oppressed. This God is the God of the marginal. This God is the God of the invisible. This God is the God of left out and the left behind. This is the God of the forgotten. And this Jesus, whom we've been called to follow, whose name We bear when we call ourselves Christian. This Jesus, says the Apostle Paul, gives us a ministry of reconciliation. This Jesus, of all the texts he could have chosen from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament, of all the texts he chose to inaugurate his ministry from the prophet Isaiah, the 61st chapter, when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me, he has sent me to proclaim good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. That's how he decides to begin his ministry. May I suggest that we cannot serve this God And follow this Jesus, knowing who this God is and what this God's mission is all about without engaging in conversation and action as it relates to race in America today. Especially to white people. May Martin Luther King's words stir us from any complacency we may be resting in. Words that are just as prophetic today as they were the day he penned them in a dank cell in the city of Birmingham. When he wrote, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, But the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, 
who constantly says, I agree with you in goal, but I cannot agree with you in method. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. In America, in Atlanta, in this church, in 2016, what should the white moderate be doing? More specifically, what should the white friend of God, the white Christian who dares to bear that name, dares to say, I follow Jesus of Nazareth, what should that person do? And so here are three things that I would suggest white friends of God, white Christians do. There are things I'm trying to do in my own life. First and foremost, be present. Be present. The Christian faith confesses that Jesus, his ministry is a ministry of presence. The very core of our theological life together is this notion that the God of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us, that decided to be with us, to be present with us. Be present with your black friends, with your black colleagues, with your black family members, with the black members of this church and this larger community, and be present and ask, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What are you thinking right now in light of all that's happening in our nation? And if you have no words, I, I learned this on Friday, if you have no words, just say that. You're present, just say that. I've got no words. I don't know how I'm feeling, but I'm here. I'm with you. Be present. Second, confess and repent. In our faith tradition, I mean, all the good Presbyterians in the room know what I'm about to say here. Our faith tradition puts confession as a major part of our liturgical life. Every week, we say we're sorry. Every week, we say we don't have it all together. Every week, we're honest about who we are in light of who God's called us to be. As Christians, we acknowledge our sin, our culpability, and our role in anything that is contrary to the gospel. It is not helpful at this time. I don't know if it has ever been helpful, actually. I don't know if it ever will be helpful for a white person to say aloud what I thought about saying on Friday. I've got black friends. I'm not one of those white people. In fact, I think it's more helpful to name just the opposite. Just the opposite. Instead, I, I think we shouldn't pass the blame. We shouldn't try to prove that I'm one of the good, good ones, right? I, I have to confess and repent of my own racism. I tried to do that a little bit a couple of months ago, this summer in a series, where it was very 
honest about my own upbringing, about what it was like to grow up in segregated Philadelphia in the 1990s. And the racist intuitions and legacies that were formed in me. That were formed in me. To say this is how racism worked in my life. This is how I activated racism in this moment or that moment. I confess it. I repent of it. I'm seeking your forgiveness and I'm hopeful for reconciliation. I've been thinking about, you know, all the movements that like to put their logos on a t-shirt. I'd like to make a t-shirt maybe for myself. Maybe you'd wear one like this. It says, I'm a racist. And on the back it says, but I don't want to be. White people have to own our role in this. It is no longer helpful, especially for the church, to say we're not like those other white people. That narrative has to come to an end. We should confess and repent, not just to God, but also to black folk. To say it, to name it, and to seek forgiveness. Third and finally, if there is ever going to be justice and peace, there has to be truth. And I'm thinking of something very specific here. White people need to tell the truth to themselves and other white people. This may be the hardest thing for sophisticated white folk like us. To actually tell other white people the truth. Like when someone says, well, there is reverse racism, you know. You tell the truth. As Melody Miozzi put it, remember that reverse racism isn't a thing. Racism is about the abuse of power and privilege. If your race denies you power and privilege, you cannot be a racist. She says, you can be a jerk. She had another word. I couldn't use it in the sermon. You can be a jerk, but you can't be a racist. Or when someone says, what about all this black-on-black crime? You tell the truth. You tell the truth. White people at a rate of two to one, according to the FBI, this isn't MSNBC, according to the FBI, commit more crimes than any other race in America. Two to one. You tell the truth. White people kill more white people than black people kill black people. You tell the truth. There are more gang murders committed by white people than black people. You tell the truth. Or when someone says that black communities have never been worse off than they are right now, you tell the truth. You call to mind the fact that the blood of slaves drenches this nation's soil. You tell the truth. You remind one another of lynchings and Jim Crow and separate but equal and voting rights and inaccessibility to quality education and systematic and institutional racism embedded and planted in the policies and laws of our land. You tell the truth of this collective past. You say it still matters because it does And anything less than that is absolutely 100% obtuse. You tell the truth. Or when someone says, I don't see color, you say, yes, you do. 
because we all see color. And, and that's actually okay. Because when I'm having a conversation, like I did this morning with a new friend, a black man, I see him as a black man, and he sees me as a white man. It's not about seeing color, it's about what we see when we see color. That's the question for white people. White people, when you see a black woman, or a black man, or a black child, what do you see? Do you see worth, intelligence, creativity, competency? What do you see? For many of us, if you're like me, you are taught to see something that is not really there. What does God say we should see? A child of the living God. Joshua said it, choose this day whom you'll serve. Jesus said it, follow me. And I'm tired in my own faith. I'm not talking about your faith, I'm just talking about my faith. I'm tired in my own faith of the lack of integrity that I have on this point. When I say I'm a Christian, and I say I'm a servant of God, and I'm not engaged in this conversation. And friends, this isn't one of those sort of optional conversations, so to speak. It's not like, hey, I do global mission, or hey, I do community ministries, or hey, I do worship in the arts, or I sing in the choir, or, or hey, I do youth ministry. This is, this is one where all of us, I believe, as, as a community, need to be engaged. This is not a preference conversation. This is mandatory, I think, if I'm reading the gospel clearly. So over the next few weeks, I'm going to convene our congregation's leadership to think and pray critically as to our role, first and foremost, and let me say this very plainly, to end racism in our own congregation. Because it exists. To end it in our own congregation. And then once we get our house in order, to figure out who we need to partner with to end racism in the city. And if we get our city in order, then we'll have a conversation on a national level. But for now, let's talk about it in our own house. If you are somebody who'd like to be a convener, or someone who'd like to participate, here's what I'm going to ask you to do this week, to email me or call me or email one of our pastors, to call one of our pastors and say, I want to be part of this conversation. Let me tell you, and this is exciting in, in a way that I wish it wasn't. But our long-range strategic planning, which has been meeting since January, has put this issue on the front burner. Race has been part of our conversation as we think about what it means for us to live into the next six, seven years of our faith and life together, that it is a priority conversation. You'll see it when the new long-range plan is released toward the end of this year. But for now, I'd like to build some conveners. I'd like to build a group of of participants and leaders who are ready to have this conversation in a way that addresses the racism in our own congregation and what we feel called to do about it. Friends, I said at the beginning, this is what I'm praying for for my own life. Do not think for one second that I do not stand outside of this word. I'm looking for people to stand with me under it. If you're ready and willing to do such a thing for the sake of the gospel, 
And for the sake of the world, I'd invite you now to say, Amen. Amen.